Here's a smart tip about a significant early bird discount. Register now to save the most on ACP's Internal Medicine Meeting 2021 Virtual Experience. You'll get the unmatched education you've come to expect from ACP in an engaging, richly interactive virtual format. Live streaming April 29th through May 1st. Learn directly from and interact with expert faculty as they address high-yield clinical topics across the spectrum of internal medicine. Earn more CME credit and MOC points than ever before, plus get post-meeting access to all scientific program sessions for 30 days or three years with premium access. Network with your colleagues and explore the virtual exhibit hall. Leave with valuable knowledge and concepts that you can immediately apply to your practice. Every year, I use ACP's annual meeting to sharpen my clinical skills and broaden my medical knowledge. I'm looking forward to attending again this year from the comfort of my own home. Catch the early bird discount before it flies away, January 31st. ACP members save $80 on registration. Visit annualmeeting.acponline.org and use the code IM21CURB. Not an ACP member? Then join now and save $330. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Stuart. This is, it's a bit of a weird evening tonight. We Very are weird. recording, it's kind of like a mini-sode, a, a recap episode. I, I'm not sure if we're going to call this rapid review or tales from the Curbside, but we're going to be talking about three recent episodes and talking about some of our favorite tips and tricks that we learned along the way. Uh, episodes number 244, vaginitis. number 246, take a bite out of cellulitis, and number 247, S-Pep It Up. All fantastic names. And uh, with us here, Stuart, is the great Dr. Paul Nelson-William. Paul, I'm here. Paul, for, <laughs> for good measure, can you just tell them... Uh, what is this show? What do we generally do on this show? I know that's not what we're doing tonight, but just, I, it feels weird if you don't say it. Yeah, no, I, I feel I'm, everything's out of order. I'm, I'm very confused, but I, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you alluded to, we're just condensing down three of our more recent episodes and really highlighting some clinical pearls we especially like for you. Yeah. So if people like this and uh, they want us to do more of this episode from time to time, let us know. We'll probably do this for a couple months, uh, once a month or so, and we'll see how it goes. So and on to the first episode. Oh, wait, is there a pun, Stuart? No, it was a transition. I was trying to transition, but you wouldn't let me. I was kind of hoping, Could you? do you have a pun that could involve uh, vulvovaginal candidiasis, uh, SPF, unf- and then also possibly, <laughs> possibly. Is there a way you could tie possibly. this together for me? <laughs> First up is episode Something like 200- a crab bite skin. Oh my kind of gosh. I think we can do it. You're killing me. <laughs> First up is episode... It's really, it's weird being interrupted. It's, it's, it kind of throws your whole game off, doesn't it? First up is episode 244, vulval vaginitis. Let's dive right in. I think, Stuart, you had a, a couple of tips that you took away from this. Why don't you get started? Yeah, that's right. So the tip that I took away from this now, I, I've got to put this out here. We're, we're three guys talking about vulval vaginitis. <laughs> so a lot of this was, it seemed like common sense. 
And I guess it just wasn't common sense to me. But it's important to talk about uh, using the appropriate feminine hygiene products. So you can't use excessively acidic or basic uh, feminine hygiene products because it affects your pH balance and it, it'll encourage overgrowth of either bacteria or um, candidal species. And uh, this is especially important after menopause when the vaginal secretions change. So I, I think, Paul, you have something to say about that specifically. Go ahead, Paul. Thank you. This is really professional stuff, Stuart. I am blown away. Um, <laughs> So, Dr. Christmas, talk to us a little bit about this genitourinary symptoms of menopause, which is a the newer terminology for what was formerly known as atrophic vaginitis. And the symptoms include genital dryness and decreased lubrication with sexual activity or discomfort or pain with sex. And I was really, I was kind of astounded at the prevalence uh, between 40 and 60%. And this is not something that I, I typically pick up with my older patient population because it's not something I ask about is really the takeaway point. So, just given how prevalent it is, I think this is something I'll have to ask more and be more proactive about eliciting the symptoms of the genitourinary symptoms of menopause, because there are things that you can do about it. Um, things like moisturizers and using lubricants with sex and topical estrogens and those kind of things. So really my big takeaway is just to make sure to ask. And a little bit back to Stuart's point, I, she, she kept saying multiple times that the vagina is a self-cleaning organ and all these things that are out there, uh, that the people are washing with soaps and fragrances and using douches, all these things that generally should not be, they're not helping. And that may be part of the, like when you have somebody that has either recurrent candidal infections or recurrent bacterial vaginosis, and they just have chronic vaginitis symptoms, you have to make sure that above all that they stop using soaps and fragrances and all those things. And uh, just hammer home the point that it is a self-cleaning organ and probably uh, they may they may be exacerbating symptoms instead of making them better. Um, the other the other thing she said is that it it there it is pretty common to have recurrent symptoms, uh, either bacterial vaginosis or candida. And in those cases with bacterial vaginosis, the treatment course is like sixteen weeks of of gel, like the metronidazole gel. Or if you're talking about bacterial uh, or candidal infection, it is sixteen weeks of like weekly fluconazole. Although she did mention that one she keeps in her back pocket is that boric acid suppositories or pessaries, depending on uh, what continent you're practicing, they they can be bought potentially even on a very famous online retailer um, if you can't find them at a local pharmacy. Next up, we have episode 246, Take a Bite Out of Cellulitis. Stuart, why don't you lead us off and tell us about one of the clinical pearls you took away from this. That's right. So uh, what I wanted to talk about was actually non-pharmacologic treatment for cellulitis, because we don't really think about this when we start thinking about how to treat cellulitis. Now, um, when I say non-pharmacologic treatment, I mean rest, elevation, and all the conservative things that we don't necessarily foot stomp, but can be extremely helpful in treating cellulitis. Um, because it helps to improve venous re- return. And it's also important to consider for those patients that have recurrent cellulitis, especially in lower extremities, considering compression therapy in order to prevent venous stasis and skin breakdown. And one of the things that I talk to my trainees about is knowing a little bit about which home-skilled nursing companies actually provide direct patient education and good wound care to prevent this recurrence. Yeah. And and Dr. Tatanji pointed out that the the recommendation for compression is actually an evidence-based therapy. There was an article late in 2020 that was advocating for this, which is great to know because it's it's 
something that we can do for many of our patients, just make sure they don't have severe peripheral arterial disease and you're choking off whatever whatever little blood flow they have. But many of our patients can be helped by it. That would have to be some really, really tight compression stockings. <laughs> Right. If I remember right, though, I think the specific study that was referenced, they actually stopped early because the benefit was so significant. So it was, it's, it's no joke. It's, it's no minor thing. No, I'm not joking. It's not a laughing matter. <laughs> Great. Good stuff. Um, I, I think one, one pearl I took away talking to Dr. Tatanji, I think we've all probably treated someone who's actually gotten a bite wound on their fist because they got in some sort of altercation and maybe their fist accidentally got in somebody's mouth as part of the process and they sustained an injury. And a point that she made is to take these injuries really, really seriously because human mouths are just filthy, filthy places. So it's, she has a very low threshold for admitting these patients to the hospital because, you know, by, by their very nature, they're crossing multiple joints. The hands are nothing to sort of mess around with. And even for minor or seemingly non-infected bites, she will prescribe prophylactic medication. So she will make sure that she's covering Iconello, which is a reminder is an anaerobe. And so if the patient's being admitted, it's Amstelbactam. And if you're trying to treat or prophylax with oral antibiotics, then she likes Amoxiclab for that. I thought that the other the other thing she said about this and that just just reading about this topic, pretty low threshold to to get imaging of of any bite yeah. wounds because you can get foreign bodies like particularly teeth uh, involved, and also um, it's just more likely that this person may may need a surgery surgery because she mentioned the clenched fist injuries they tend to present a bit later. One of the things that I think will probably be practice changing for me is I would always try to think like okay, how many days of antibiotics do I need to give this person? Do I think it'll be better in five days? What if it takes a little longer to heal? Should I give them seven days or 10 days? And what Dr. Tatanji said is that she will prescribe a range, usually like five to seven days if the person's not as sick, maybe seven to 10 days if she thinks the person's gonna be a bit slower to heal. And she'll try to see the person and follow up with the wound sometime during that period. And then you can flex the antibiotic duration uh, either longer or shorter as needed, which I thought was just really great. Um, that way, like if if the patient is not better at five days, they don't have to call you and get a new prescription. They they have the extra antibiotics there. So as long as you have a patient that you can work with that can follow the instructions, I thought that was a really great pearl. Anything else you guys wanted to highlight before we move on? No, I think that's it. All right. Great. And while this recording was a little bit rough, just remember McGruff, the crime dog, but we took a bite out of cellulitis just for you. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. I'm going to be honest with you. There's a, sort of a vague rhyme. I guess, I guess the bite thing. Tied I think it's McGruff, the crime dog. No, I, a I, bite I, out listen, of crime. I know McGruff, the crime dog is. <laughs> I think Stewart's just, he's put it on a show for himself, which I kind of uh, respect that. He's just freestyling over there. It's really, it's the jokes you don't hear that are the funny ones. It's like, he's that. in a shtick coma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lastly, we have episode 247, S-Pep It Up. We'll start with Stuart and find out what, what takeaway points he uh, gleaned from this episode. So the, the takeaway that I had was more of a, just a, a way to understand the S-Pep using the shock sign. And so using the shock sign, I got to turn that around. So you've got the albumin, the alpha-1, alpha-2, beta, and the gamma region. So what you should see is the smooth appearance of the gamma region, but if you have a gammopathy in the gamma region, you sh you'll see a spike in that region. That's why it's called an M spike. And if you have a polyclonal gammopathy, it, it changes the way the whole albumin to, to uh, globulin ratio changes and it actually shifts it a little bit, which is a little different. And then 
a kind of a springboard on that. And this is what I took away from the episode is the importance of immunofixation in the specificity and identifying what that protein is in the uh, gamma region and how to interpret that. Yeah, right. So the SPEP just tells you, is there an M spike or not? M spike meaning there's some sort of monoclonal protein being produced. And then the immunofixation tells you, is it IgG? Is it IgM? Is it IgA? Is it a light chain? It, it, it basically tells you, it tells you the specificity, as you said. I also learned it's called the shock assign. The shock assign. Yeah. Yeah. And we have some great infographics, which hopefully we'll be able to display in this video as well. And you can also find on our website. Paul, uh, the other thing that, and I know you're going to, you have, you wanted to talk about hyperviscosity to tease your point a little bit, but one of the biggest things for me from this one was talking about the big three in MGUS. MGUS is where you have a monoclonal protein. And a lot of the time MGUS doesn't progress to anything. And those patients, it's about 1% a year can progress to multiple myeloma. Uh, it, it progresses maybe a little bit more like 1.5% per year if it's an IgM type. But in general, uh, you should think about the big three, multiple myeloma, amyloidosis, and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And the illness scripts for those, I think, are relatively simple and really good to just keep in your back pocket. So for multiple myeloma, you think about CRAB. The C is for hypercalcemia. The R is for renal abnormalities, usually elevated creatinine. And uh, the A is for anemia. The B is for bone lesions. That's why you get the bone survey looking for lytic lesions. For amyloidosis, you uh, you can have cardiac abnormalities. You can have macroglossia and large tongue. The patients can have a nephrotic syndrome. And then they can have a type of neuropathy But what he pointed out is that they might have both motor and sensory neuropathy, and there could even be muscle wasting associated with it, which is different than like your typical diabetic nephropathy or neuropathy rather. And then finally, Paul, there is Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, which is really more of a lymphoma. And that one has anemia plus this hyperviscosity syndrome, which Paul, I had no idea what that meant. Yeah, no, it's, and I, I, I I thought this was a really helpful illness script because I, I feel like I Waldenstrom's is something that I knew for the boards at one point and I've probably forgotten about and don't think about much. But it, it's Dr. Castillo actually made the point with an SPEP, you can potentially save a patient's life if you have the right threshold uh, of suspicion. So in terms of the hyperviscosity seen in Waldenstrom's, you have, yes, the epistaxis, but then also symptoms that should maybe tip you off or these patients have persistent headaches or they have blurred vision that doesn't correct with glasses. Um, that would also raise suspicion. They have all sorts of characteristic findings on fundoscopic examination that might be probably, frankly, right. uh, beyond the average internist, but just something to be wary of. But um, another sort of takeaway point with all of these things, I, I think they're, it's nice to have the illness script for the big three, and I think that's really important. But I, I think you guys did a nice job of reinforcing that this can get kind of confusing sometimes and to not fear referral. I, you know, I, I think it was the conversation about amyloid where if you have the pathologic tissue diagnosis, congratulations. But if you don't, that doesn't mean the patient doesn't have it. Yeah. So it's <laughs> one of those things where if you're not quite sure what to do, this is a great time to call in your friendly neighborhood hematologist because that's what they're there for. Even the emguses, which are recognized as benign, can progress. So to have them monitor and sort of know what fancy pants labs to order is really, really helpful. So this is one where it's okay to be a little bit confused because we all kind of are. And I was certainly helped by this episode, but don't be afraid to involve hematology if you're not sure what to do. One more thing about the about Waldenstrom's that I'm not sure that I mentioned earlier was that that it it does tend to have a neuropathy associated with it that's a, a more of a peripheral neuropathy 
in a length dependent manner, and it, it tends to involve the hands and the feet. So if somebody has a neuropathy that's like symmetrical, it's distal, and it doesn't quite make sense, they don't have diabetes, this might be something that, that you could think of as well. And it's, it's different than the amyloid because there's no motor involvement with this one. So this was, as Paul said, it's a really complicated topic. Our guests did a great job explaining it. If you'd like to hear the full episode, you can click on the link below. And if you want to subscribe to our mailing list or to our podcast, you can visit thecurbsiders.com. And if the discussion is putting a little pep in your step, I really recommend you listen to SPEP episode. <laughs> do you like this podcast but feel like maybe you could do a better job? Would you like to make your own podcast? Let me tell you about Anchor. What is Anchor, you ask? I'm glad that you did. It is the free all-in-one platform that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Now, you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. This means you could do something novel and creative, like some sort of podcast about music, which I'm pretty sure has never been done before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changer knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode. I believe it's just Matt, me, and Paul. And to our social media team, Beth Garps Garpatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Garganoff, Karganoff on our website, and Chris the Chew Man <laughs> on Facebook. Until next time. I've been mispronouncing everyone's name. I'm Stuart Kent Brigham. Timo will really know that he's made it when you get his last name right, Stuart. <laughs> uh, uh, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Fragwato. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the amazing Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly, who edits our audio and probably put that music there. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye, Paul. <laughs>